Well, seeking the help of the Lord, we turn back to the chapter we read there in Mark, chapter 8, and our text from verse 27. Now, just before we uh, begin uh, with the sermon as usual, I want just to make a brief uh, comment. Uh, We are, of course, in very different and difficult times. And we have put steps and measures in place as a congregation to try and uh, follow the best practice guidelines that we have. We have uh, avoided the traditional greeting of a handshake at the door. We have, and I see you've spread yourselves out across the congregation well. And we are also, we have removed the usual pew uh, samadis. Uh, That is also a possible place of infection. So I would encourage you to um, even, I'm afraid, not to take up the usual uh, enjoyment of a bit of fellowship on the way out as well, disperse to your cars uh, after the service fairly rapidly. And uh, I know that we have uh, many folk of our congregation and probably beyond joining us uh, online today who ordinarily would be in the place of worship and would love to be here. And I want just to address a few things to those who are online Um, As we have tried to set out in the different statements we have uh, made as a church and as a deacon's court, uh, we believe that there is no sin in those who, for the sake of health, their own or others, have chosen to stay behind in obedience to the commandment of God, not because they want to skip church or miss church, far from it, but those who do so because They're willing to sacrifice what they would rather do for the sake of others. That is not, we understand it, a sin in any way. And we would encourage you in that. And as you make use of the means of grace available to you by digital means and remote means, that itself is an encouragement. And we sang there at the beginning of our worship in Psalm 118, Indwellings of the righteous has heard the melody. And in our own homes there can still be that melody heard and that rejoicing and that act of worship taking place. And we're thankful that we live in an age when that is possible in ways that it was not possible before at this point. But because, and maybe even some of us here will yet come into this category, we're physically present, we are maybe going to have to move increasingly to online services in some cases. Well, there is something different and new. It is a whole new way of experiencing and undertaking the worship of God for many of us. Some of us had to do it on occasions when we had a bad cold or some other illness and couldn't get out. But to do so on an extended time is quite different. And I would encourage you, uh, those who are online and who may yet be, to try to take in, first of all, the whole of the service. Uh, We tend to have folk joining us very often in time for the sermon. And uh, that is, of course, a very important part of our worship. And that is one thing, perhaps, if you're just in for a week. But when you are possibly going to be confined for a longer period, and this is the worship that you are going to be able to access, then we would encourage you to take in from the beginning of this service right the way through until the benediction. This is the worship of God. And we would want to try to keep it as close to 
what would be our ordinary practice as possible. And so do uh, treat it in that way seriously with the same reverence as you would ordinarily give it. And it is an encouragement to us uh, that uh, from the broadcast even that is happening beside me here, I can see uh, roughly how many people are logging on at any one point. And usually we have between six and eight, and there are about 34 or so today, separate logins. So we trust that the word is going out and that it will accomplish that which he pleases and will not return to him void. Well then, we return again to our text and to the gospel according to Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. And Caesarea Philippi then is our next stop as we follow in the footsteps of the Saviour around the land of his public ministry. And Caesarea Philippi is probably not what any of us would think of as a crux city in the ministry of Jesus. It is something of a surprise inclusion almost into the record of Scripture. Probably many of us, if we were given a map of the land of Israel, we could get some idea of where we would place, well, Jerusalem, certainly. And we would probably also know which body of water was the Sea of Galilee, and which was the River Jordan, and which was the Dead Sea. Maybe a few other towns, we might have some idea where to locate them, but Where is Caesarea Philippi? How many of us would have any idea where to locate that? Well, Caesarea Philippi is straight up north. Right up as far as you can imagine, almost to the border with Syria. That's where we locate. If you think of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is about on the same latitude as the north end of the Dead Sea. So if you travel from Jerusalem towards the north end of the Dead Sea, you're traveling eastwards there, then you go up the River Jordan northwards, you get to the Sea of Galilee. If you go straight north through the middle of the Sea of Galilee, you get to Capernaum on the northwestern banks. And then there's a feeder river going into the Sea of Galilee, also flowing southwards. So travel northwards up that feeder river, right the way up, to the borders of Syria, and there is where you will find this little place called Caesarea Philippi, literally Philip's Caesarea. There's another, there's a reason why it's called Caesarea Philippi, and the reason is there's a better known Caesarea. And this Caesarea was often visited by Paul and others. You'll read about it in your New Testaments, in the Acts especially. And it was on the Mediterranean coast. It was far to the north and west of where we are just now. But it was, this Caesarea was in the territory of Philip. And hence it was known as Caesarea Philippi. Philip was one of the Herods. He was actually probably one of the gentler versions of the Herods. They were generally pretty gruesome people. But after the the breakup of Herod the Great, his territory was divided uh, much, uh, largely amongst his own family. And Philip, being one of the Herods, and uh, one of the sons of Herod, he was given what's called a tetrarchy in this area, which is now to the north and east of most of what we think of as the land of Israel, north of Decapolis. 
And so he built or rebuilt this city. And it was done in honor of Caesar. Philip was someone who was quite keen to keep in with the powers that be. And it was known as Philip's Caesarea or Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea, of course, being a reference to Caesar. Anyway, the main geographical feature for us to reckon with and notice is how far north it is. Just about as far north as Jesus ever went, as far as we have any record. About on the same uh, latitude as Tyre. We were looking at that recently, Tyre and Sidon. So I think even in the name, there's a suggestion that we are well beyond the influence of the Jewish leaders. Some were named after Caesar would not have been high on their list of renaming priorities. A town dedicated to Caesar, Caesarea Philippi. So that's where we are. And it's the only time that the record shows, at least, that Jesus ever visited this place. Now, to get to Caesarea Philippi, we have uh, bypassed, I suppose, in our travels, some of the other places that Jesus went to. He went to Dalmanutha. He went to Bethsaida, even, probably better known than Dalmanutha. But despite its comparative distance and obscurity, the events of Caesarea Philippi are milestone events in the ministry of Christ. And so we want to look at them now. Now, if you want comparative references, the parallel accounts to what is here in Mark are earlier on in Matthew, in chapter 16 of Matthew, and the next gospel in Luke in chapter 9. So we have that in Matthew 16, Mark 8, and Luke 9. Let us come then to our first point, which is a safe place for a dangerous question. Here is a safe place for a dangerous question. I want to notice the question that Jesus asked first of all of his disciples. Whom do men say that I am? Matthew records as Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? That's the key question, and we're going to come to that. But I want to notice before we get there the timing of this question and the timing of the Lord. Because he asks them this question at a key point in his ministry. He has now traversed, and we have been with him as it were in our study. He has traversed the whole land, north and south, east and west, Jewish territory, Samaritan territory, Gentile coastlands. And so the disciples are now in a position to have followed Christ for an extensive ministry. They have seen and heard what people are saying about him in all different kinds of places. And after they have that kind of a a basis upon which to answer the Lord, he asks them this question. But more especially, Notice that Jesus asks this question, not just at a point that they're able to give a a reasonable answer about what men are saying, but he asks them this question in a safe place. He asks them this question as far away from the power of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem as he ever went with his disciples. You see, sometimes they did send from Jerusalem to find out what this rabbi was doing. They sent up as far as Capernaum, up into Galilee, what was going on? To quiz and inquire and report back. But way up on the extreme north end of the tetrarchy of Philip the Herod. 
There's no record of them ever sending people that far. So this was a safe place, or at least a relatively safe place, to ask this question. And of course the disciples give a range of answers, first of all. And if you compare the different gospel accounts, you find they give, these are the answers they give. Either Elijah, or John the Baptist, or Jeremiah, or another prophet, possibly even a prophet raised again from the dead. These are the range of answers that the people are discussing in general as to who Jesus might be. And it's an interesting sort of response that they're able to gather because in gathering their response in this way, it gives an insight into the kind of way that the general population were viewing Christ. He's mentioned as being on a par with Jeremiah and Elijah and John. So it's not that John is on the same level as Jeremiah and Elijah as well. But the Christ is in that kind of a category. And it gives us therefore an insight into the impression left upon the hearts of the population over this widespread and extensive ministry of Christ. It was Jeremiah and Elijah and John. It was not Elisha and Isaiah. It was Jeremiah and Elijah that they thought he might be. In other words, they saw the ministry of Christ as a ministry that was somewhat severe upon them. A ministry of warning and a call to repentance. Serious in tone with an emphasis upon the sins of the people. These were the themes that characterized the ministries of Jeremiah and Elijah and John. And then Jesus focuses the question in still more and in a still more dangerous way. But whom say ye that I am? And again, remember, this was a relatively safe place. Jesus did not ask them this question in all the the hostile, glaring spotlight that would be upon them in Jerusalem, where spies were everywhere. He did not even ask them this question in the, the popular bustle of people who liked him around Capernaum. No. It was in the quiet solitude of a place where Jesus was almost unknown. There's no record here that people, when they heard Jesus came, rushed to bring him their sick. They didn't know who he was. And what I want you to notice is therefore the care of Christ Jesus for his people. You see, he has this way. He has this gentleness, this manner about him, where he does ask things of us, yes. But he often begins to ask things of us in the safest and quietest places. Sometimes even in the secret of our hearts, first of all. And so it is this morning, dear friends, as we face the question in our text, and as some of you perhaps have to wrestle with what this means to you, who do you say that Jesus is? What is your response to that question? And you can respond to that whether you're listening at home or here present. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he to you? Well, the first place that you should answer that question is in private. It is to yourself as well, in the privacy of your heart, in the seclusion of your own soul. 
You know, the reason we say that is because it was then, and in many ways still is, a dangerous question. How this way, how is it dangerous? Remember, remember the man who was born blind. And Jesus healed him. He's remember the one who said, one thing I know, when he was being questioned by the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, one thing I know. But as I was blind, now I see. Once I was blind, but now I see. And then the Sanhedrin called his parents and they asked them the same question. They said, it is our son and he was born blind. But they said, we don't know how he came to see. He is of age. Ask him. And John records in his gospel, these words spake his parents because they feared the Jews For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. So it was a dangerous question. Jesus was asking them now in a quiet and safe place, are you ready to confess me? So it was a safe place for what was a dangerous question. Secondly, we have here a key place for a glorious confession. A key place for a glorious confession. Come then to the answer made by Peter. Thou art the Christ. Or Matthew's record of it. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or Luke's record of it. Thou art the Christ of God. Now, in many ways, as we said, Caesarea Philippi is hardly the hub of the activity of Jesus in his ministry. But it is worthy of our remembering of, that this place exists precisely because of the confession made of Jesus by Peter on behalf of the disciples. Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Here, then, is a confession that brings with it The threat of what would have been for any Jewish man a dreadful excommunication by the Jewish church put out of the synagogue. That doesn't just mean physically ejected from one building. Far more than that. It's a formal expulsion. It's saying you're no longer a Jew. We refuse to acknowledge you. We revoke your Jewishness. You have no right to the promises, no place in the covenants, no claim upon God's mercy. You may not say, Jehovah is your God. That would have been the view, the official view of the church of the day. For anyone who confessed that Jesus was the Christ. But dear friends, let us mark then this place. Let us love this place of Caesarea Philippi, the place where the disciples of Jesus were given both the peace and the safety and the opportunity and the strength to make their first great confession of the Christhood of their master. Thou art the Christ. It's a key point because who Jesus is, is the first and great thing we must know about him. And that was the witness of his entire ministry up until this point. His signs and miracles were testifying who he was and who he is. 
His ministry, his miracles, his public, his private teaching, his parables, his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, his grasp of the truth, the authority of his lessons and preaching, his ability to explain it like no one had ever explained it before, his innate authority in dealing with the people from the word, his impeccable sinless speech and faultless life, the depths of his compassion and love for the needy, his power over the waves of the sea, his control over the fish in the net, By his ministry, up and down the land, everywhere he had gone, Jesus had convinced these men in the depths of their heart, this is the Christ. Who else could it be? This is the anointed one promised. Finally, God has heard our prayers of our nation. God has kept his promise and visited us with the Saviour. And Peter's confession doesn't even just say thou art the Christ. It expresses a great understanding of who Christ is in his person. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of God. Peter was confessing as he stood before this man. Both his Christhood and his Godhood. Peter was confessing a deep understanding that Jesus had the authority and ought to be heeded because of who he was. That was what underlay the confession of Peter, who Jesus was. That's why we still to this day, we speak about Christ and we speak about the person and the work of Christ. Because the work of Christ The miracles, yes. The teaching, the compassion, the care, the suffering, the death, the resurrection, the ascension. All of that depends upon who he is. What he did. For its worth and merit depends upon who he is. The whole work And worth of the work of the Saviour rests entirely upon the dignity of his person as the chosen and anointed God-man. And that is a wonderful confession that Peter makes. It's a key place for a great confession. To say to the person who's standing in front of you, looking much as any other middle-aged man would have looked, I believe you are the longed-for Messiah. I believe you're the one that God was speaking about when he made that promise in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. I believe you're the one that God was speaking of when he made that covenant with Abraham. I believe you're the one that God was speaking of when he gave that promise to David of the son of his line. I believe you're the one that Isaiah was speaking of when he gave us these great prophecies. I believe you're the one that Zechariah was meaning as the fellow of God upon whom the sword would awake. I believe you're the one who will come suddenly to his temple, as Malachi said. I believe that's who you are. 
Somehow Peter was given the insight and the grasp. To say, I believe the person standing right in front of me, whom I can see with my eyes plain as day, is the one before whose glory Moses had to veil his face. So then, this is the confession of Peter. And it is personal as well as it is on behalf of all the disciples. It is Peter saying, you are my saviour and you are my God. And I will worship you. And so then, the name of Caesarea Philippi ought to be fastened into our brains. It ought to make us love the place itself. The stones and the dust of Caesarea Philippi for the sake of this confession. But I want to notice something else as we go on. As well as taking them to a safe place for this confession to be made. He took them to a named place. Some things happened in the life of Christ. And we're not always sure where they happened. Maybe it just says in the wilderness. But which wilderness? Or he taught them this by the way, but on the way to where, we're not always clear. But Caesarea Philippi, Philip's Caesarea, to this place named after the Caesar, after the emperor of the world. And yet it was here that a small band of men dared to confess their faith that the king of kings had come, that the true ruler over Caesar and everyone else was in fact this rabbi Jesus of Nazareth, the true ruler of the universe. It was, if you like, both a, a rebellion and a coronation. It was the crowning of Christ with the crowning of this title, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was the announcement, if you like, it was the herald that a new kingdom was begun in the world. A kingdom that seemed small as a man's hand. But it would fill the earth. And it would have no end. And here it is confessed. A new kingdom that would have no end. It was like the portent for the fall of the kingdoms of this world. In the very place named after the Caesar, the king of this world. Caesar is long gone. This town that was named in his honour now serves to give honour to Christ. And we love it for that as well. Thirdly and finally, a noteworthy place for a changed ministry. A noteworthy place for a changed ministry. We have a final point to make, and it is that there was at this point a step change in the ministry of Christ. You can trace it back to this moment of this confession, this question and this answer. The confession of Jesus as the Christ had been lovingly and gently and wisely and kindly and carefully drawn out of the disciples by Jesus at a place where they could feel relaxed enough to make it, safe enough to make it, they knew him. 
And they had to be given the courage to confess him as he was. It must have been a great relief on their part to to say it. And to hear themselves saying it out loud must have been an encouraging and strengthening thing to now openly be saying, Jesus, thou art the Christ. And with that wonderful confession, everything changed again. Now that his true identity had been established and it was known and it was all his ministry had had culminated in this realization, Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ of God, the Savior sent into the world. Now that that had been established and successfully so for his disciples, Jesus immediately shifts the focus of his ministry onto the work that he came to do. And what we said, the person And the work of Christ. That's the order. And so in verse 31. And he began to teach them. Just beginning to. But he began then to teach them. That the son of man must suffer many things. And be rejected of the elders. And of the chief priests and the scribes. And be killed. And after three days. Rise again. Luke tells us the same thing in chapter 9, verse 21. He straightly charged and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. And again, Matthew tells us really the same thing in as many words. And so with the disciples grasping and understanding who Jesus is, It is time for the Lord to shift the focus of his ministry and begin to tell them now what he, as the Christ, is going to do. What he had to do. Up until now, there was a rising excitement. Is this the Christ? I think it is. And the more he spoke and the more he demonstrated his love and the more they saw his ministry and the more they heard his teaching and the more they witnessed his miracles, the more convinced they became. But they had little thought of what he was come to do. And probably what they had thought had been wrong. And that view, that aspect of his ministry had been largely obscured But now it was told in open and plain terms. So much so that Peter was quite offended at it. But there is here this key step change in the ministry of the Savior from this point. And it is an instructive and helpful change to notice. Because up until this point, it had all been geared... To this purpose of the convincing of men and particularly of the disciples that he is in fact the son of God. The Messiah chosen by God. That he is worthy of their trust. That they ought to believe in him. That they ought to trust in him personally as to be their saviour. And they ought to worship him as their God. The one who will fulfil their greatest hopes. But how it was to be done have been kept in reserve because it would have been a hindrance to their understanding both to try to grapple with the who and the how at the same time. And so it would have been a hurdle to their faith. And Jesus, now that that clarity is there, 
He begins to bring it to the fore, to the front and centre. And dear friends, how often this is the case with the child who is brought to faith, with the soul who is converted. When we are first saved, what do we know? We know so little. But what we understand of Jesus, we understand that he's the saviour, yes. We understand that he's God and we worship him, yes. We accept that. We see that he is our only hope, yes. But very few of us at the beginning of any real grasp of the work of the cross. If you ask, who is Jesus to me? You say, he's my saviour. What has he done? He's forgiven me my sins. He's given me a new heart. How did the cross accomplish that? And that's much harder to answer at the beginning. But upon confessing him, upon committing our hearts to him, even in a, a quiet Caesarea Philippi of our own souls, as it were, in committing our souls to the Lord, he begins to open our understanding of how he accomplished it all. And that whole area becomes a great wonder to the newly enlightened mind of the convert. And so there is here then from Caesarea Philippi, there is a straight and direct path to the cross of Christ. The die is cast, the way is fixed, the cross awaits. And though Peter was initially hostile to this teaching, taking Christ aside and rebuking him, oh, that poor Peter whom we love so much, he would come to depend upon the work of the cross with all his heart. He would come to love what Christ had accomplished in his suffering and in his rejection and in his death. He would come to preach it to the ends of the earth. And notice the the great clarity and liberty with which, and the calmness in the Savior's voice as he began to explain. Verse 31, began to teach them. They must suffer many things. He must suffer many things. He'll be rejected by the elders and the scribes and the priests. And it is rejected in the confession that the disciples had just made, the conclusion they had come to, Jesus is the Christ. And they would say, no, he's not. He'll be rejected. And then he'd be killed, suffering greatly. But he would rise on the third day. The simplest facts. Christ is not at this point expounding the 22nd Psalm to them. He's telling them the simple facts of what he would go on to do. But they became now the focus of his ministry. And he spoke that saying openly. And so Caesarea Philippi, he marks this great change in the, in the trajectory of the ministry of Christ, its first great phase is to convince his disciples who he is. And its second great phase is to then explain to them what he must do. And then, of course, his actual accomplishment of it. So that's the change that has happened. I want to make some closing applications briefly. You are asked then today this question, whom do you say that I am? That is a challenge to every one of us, to the children and to the adults, to the men and to the women. Who do you say he is? 
And you are urged, therefore, to confess him as he is, the Saviour, the Christ of God, the Son of the living God. Confess him, even if that first confession now is in a quiet place, even if it is to be in the secrecy of your heart, he will hear it. Make that confession. Secondly, increase your faith by trusting in both the care and the thoughtfulness of your Saviour. He asks people to confess him, yes. But he does so in the safest way for them. He will not hurt any soul in asking them to confess him when they should. He will shield that soul from many dangers. He will allow you to mature in your faith at whatever is the best rate for you. Trust in his care. Thirdly, an interest therefore in and an attention to a new developing interest in the work of Jesus, in the suffering and death of Jesus, is a welcome sign of spiritual growth and development. It is even, we might say, a great and fixed mark of grace. And struggling with it, but still thinking of it, as Peter did here, is no evidence of being unsaved. But Jesus, you see, tends to bring his cross before the hearts of those who already love his person and who have already confessed him to be their saviour, even if they don't yet greatly understand how he will accomplish it or how he has now accomplished it. Jesus often brings a cross before the hearts of those who love his person and who are ready to own him as their saviour. And so interest in the cross, if you have an interest in the cross, that is to be a great encouragement for your soul, friends. A great encouragement for your soul if you have an interest in the cross. And fourthly, we might say the other way. If the cross is nothing to you, if the work of Christ has no real interest to you at all, if it's just something you learned like you learned it in Sunday school, then return to the first question. Whom do you say that I am? Who is Christ to you? If the cross is nothing to you as you pass by, who is Christ upon the cross? Is he the Christ? Is he really the Christ? Is he really the Son of God? Is he really the Savior of the world? And you need to go back, friend, and reread again the opening sections of the Gospels, giving you that opening part of the ministry of Christ, and read them through with this question in your mind, who is this Jesus? Is he God? Is he the Christ or is he not? Read it and reread it with this one question in mind, could this be anyone other than the Christ of God? And you, if you read it in that way, with that question in your heart, praying to God to answer that question for you, you will be brought to see that Jesus is God, I am sure. You will be brought to see that Jesus is the Christ and the Saviour. 
You will be brought in fact to the very same confession as Peter. Thou art the Christ. The son of the living God. And you will find then. That you now develop a true and real interest. In the cross of Christ. Because you understand the person of Christ. A little better. And so this place of Caesarea Philippi. Is part of our study. And it is a wonderful place. In the ministry of Christ. May he bless his word. Let us pray.